Hi, Lewis. Hi, Nancy. How are you doing? Fine, thanks. Great. Well, th you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, very good. Thanks. Thank you so much for joining me. This is episode three of the ICO podcast. And um, just to preface this conversation before we get into um, the nitty gritty, um, Nancy and I met on Vancouver Island um, back in October. Uh, and um, we were so lucky, my, my girlfriend and I, to be a part of a pit cook that Nancy, Nancy led. Um, and Nancy is an incredible ethnobotanist, um, a expert in the First Nations. I hope I've got that right, First Nations, or has, has it changed? No, that... Okay, because okay, when, when we were travelling in Canada, I heard some people saying First Peoples, so I wasn't, I wasn't quite sure. Um, but I, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I, I just want to dive in, Nancy, and um, I really want to know about your background. The, the whole um, point of this podcast is to talk to interesting and unusual people with fantastic careers and um, people who are doing unusual things, and, and you certainly fit into that category. Um, and ICO stands for Inspiration, Knowledge and Opportunity. Um, so I would love to know what was your inspiration for doing what you do now? Oh my goodness. It goes back a long way. Uh, <laughs> probably to when I was, um, very young, uh, before I was five years old, we lived in Montana and grew, I grew up, you know, roaming around the hills in the Ponderosa pine woods and country up around Missoula with my sister and spent a lot of time picking wild strawberries and Saskatoon berries. We called them Sarvis berries and choke cherries and so forth. I, I grew to love plants and nature way back then and uh, haven't lost that love all this, all these years. Amazing. Fantastic. And so what, what took you from, you know, loving nature into the, the career field that you're in today? I mean, obviously, I, you know, you went to university, but then how, how did things really get involved in, in the First Nations for you? What, what, what was that path? Right. Well, we moved to Victoria when I was five. And uh, I, I always had an interest, not just in the plants and animals and so forth, but um, how people use them. So I remember making a dandelion salad for my friends when I was in grade four. And I did uh, dyes with different kinds of plants and roots and, you know, just tried to figure out how they were used. Then uh, when I was in maybe 12 or 13, I heard about this field called ethnobotany. And I, I was lucky enough to get a hold of two books when I was still in high school, really, or to hear about them. One, uh, The Ethnobotany of Western Washington by Erna Gunther, and one um, on the Ethnobotany of the Thompson or Ntlakatmo, uh, First Nations of British Columbia. And that's when I realized this is a field that I could actually go into. I wanted to be a botanist of some sort, and this seemed to be just a perfect fit for me and my interests. I believe in our high school yearbook, it says right there, I want to be an ethnobotanist. Oh, wow. 
when I got to university, um, I started taking botany and then I took anthropology and uh, in, in my uh, a third year course in anthropology, we had a speaker come into our class who was um, uh, Chief Philip Paul. He was the chief of the Chartland uh, Saanich First Nation, very close to Victoria. And he talked about things that I'd never heard of before about the residential schools and the issues around colonization and so forth that his people had endured. And I was really astonished by this because I hadn't heard very much about it. But anyway, when I went to do my honors thesis, when I was in fourth year at, at university, uh, I got up my courage and I phoned uh, Chief Paul and asked him if there's anyone in his community who might be willing to work with me um, to, to teach me about plants if from their perspective. And he, I still remember him saying, oh, so you want to learn all our secrets, do you? <laughs> <laughs> I said, no, no, not, not your secrets, just anything. He laughed. He was teasing me, of course. And uh, he put me in touch with his father, Christopher Paul, who was essentially, I call him my first teacher in ethnobotany because um, after that, uh, I would go out and visit Christopher every Tuesday afternoon for a few hours, bringing armloads of plants with me. And we would sit and talk about them and record their names. And we went out walking around his, his uh, house and property. And we went up and looked at some of the sacred mountains, so well enough, near his house. And that's where I got my start, really. Um, I worked with linguists a lot, even uh, when I was first starting, uh, so that we could record the names in the indigenous languages properly, because that's a very important part of this kind of knowledge. Wow, that's amazing. Incredible. I mean, I, I, uh, I was very lucky that I grew up in the countryside, and um, like you, I, I had a plant teacher, but, but mine was a, a, an old English guy called Fred, and... Um, he, he'd been brought up in a house that was surrounded by woodlands and I'm sure nothing quite as exciting as your teacher, but that's where my, my passion came for the natural world because um, he could eat everything that you could probably eat that's in the English countryside and, um, you know, he knew how to pick it and prepare it and he used to bring in soups and, and all kinds of things. So um, this has really fascinated me and, and I think the more... Uh, I got into studying permaculture a number of years ago and, and then sort of really um, started to understand a little bit more about ethnobotany. I mean, it's it's such a an incredible and fascinating thing. Um, but it, it is quite sad that not so many people are, are knowledgeable about it. Um, and I think it's such valuable knowledge that we need to preserve. Um, and, you know, people like you are doing such amazing works. And I think, thankfully, that um, other ethnobotanists over the last, I guess, you know, 20, 30 years seem to be, you know, getting a little bit more out there. People like Paul Stamets and, and others. Um, 
So how, how do you see your role in that? I mean, it, it must be such an amazing thing to be protecting and, and be almost the guardian of, of this really sacred knowledge that, that's been passed down. Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I, I should just preface this by um, acknowledging that I had a teacher who was from England as well, Freeman King, his name was. He was uh, an elderly man at the time, fought in the, sec in the First World War, um, but he was the leader of the Victoria Junior Natural History Society that I was a member of. And he was very, always very encouraging of me. So we have that commonality in our past as well. <laughs> and uh, right from the start, as I started working with elders and learning from them and learning the medicines and where to go to get certain plants and all of that, I realized, I recognized that um, we were bonded by a mutual love of plants, that the elders I worked with were recognizing that not too many of the younger people in their families or communities were learning what they knew because they all were busy with other things, they had their own issues. And so they, uh, I think they entrusted me with that knowledge, with the understanding and the commitment, unspoken but there nevertheless, that I would uh, help to document that knowledge and to keep it living and to keep it pass, passing it along. And, and that's what I've tried to do my entire life, is to think of those people who are my teachers, most of them of all of the original ones have passed away now, but to think of what they had in mind when they spent their time and energy teaching me about these things, that they had a purpose, and that was to make sure their knowledge wasn't lost. And so that's, that's what I really um, try to do every time, to pass it on in a good way, in the way that they intended. Uh, yeah, incredible. And, and I think, you know, Jules and I, have just not stopped talking about that pit cook that that you um, so kindly shared with us in in Canada. I mean, it was such an amazing experience, and and to see a a, a real living functional piece of history being you know remade uh, in such an amazing way. And and you do such a better job of explaining it. But you know the the watching that pit cook come together as as a an an event. And and I I'm only guessing, but I'm sure that that was that's one of the things I think we've lost in, in modern society, you know, sort of food and eating is we do it on the go and we eat at the train stations and bus stations and in the car. And, and so we've almost lost the ceremony of, of honoring our food and where it's come from. And, um, you know, the plants and animals that have kind of in effect given their lives for us to, to consume. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm really interested a, a, about that. And I'd love to know where you learn, about the pit cooking techniques and, and who taught you that. But but also um, what really fascinates me is this ceremonial aspect of, of food that I, I think we've lost in, in the modern world. Yes, that's, uh, that's a, a huge topic, of course. Um, for the First Nations that I've worked with and, and from my readings as well, um, I, I believe that... Uh, Indigenous peoples as, as a whole, peoples who 
live for a long period of time in one place and depended on the plants and animals and fungi of that place for their uh, survival. Um, they have a special relationship with the land and with those other species, and it's very reciprocal. It's, uh, it's not just take, 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 but it's a, a very much caretaking role that people assume. And uh, some of my indigenous colleagues have called it kin-centricity, the, the notion that that these plants and animals and, and even the rocks and the water are our kin, are our relatives, and uh, they they're very generous relatives. They provide for us, but we have a responsibility to them as well. And, we, and uh, if we don't meet that responsibility, uh, it will go badly for us in the long run. And so um, that's that's an idea that I think is a is value driven and it's it's shared through teachings, through songs, and dances, through art, uh, through stories, and um, that's how children learned about this from from an early age. I think humanity as a whole needs to take on that attitude much more strongly if we're going to be able to maintain and sustain our environment for ourselves and for the other species that we share the planet with. That was the, that was one response, but I've forgotten the first part of your <laughs> question now. Um, just, just about the pit cook. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Um, I've worked very closely over the years with a dear friend and colleague, Dr. Harriet Kuhnlein, and uh, she and I, uh, she's a nutritionist by her background and um, has done work with indigenous food systems all around the world, uh, but she started working in British Columbia and we got to know each other around 1980 and have been co collaborating ever since. And um, she wanted to do nutrient analysis of the traditional indigenous foods of British Columbia. And um, some of them were foods that were pit cooked and she wanted to take samples of the raw food, but also of the cooked food, the food that was cooked in traditional ways to see what changes there might be in the nutrients. So um, I was working at the time with a, a dear friend John Thomas from the Dididat Nation. And um, John's mom, Ida Jones, knew about pit cooking and uh, she had done it as a young woman, uh, gone out with the root diggers of her day and uh, she knew, she, they used to harvest the roots and the women would cook them collectively in a, in a pit they'd tie their roots in bundles with special knots so they could recognize their own, their own roots. And then they used them not just for eating immediately, but for uh, processing, drying, and storing for winter. In those days, that would have been in the early 1900s and, um, or the 1920s. Um, so John, together, John and Ida and I... Um, 
sorry, John and Harriet and I went to visit his mom uh, out at uh, the San Juan River at Chidat. And, um, and uh, Ida explained about the pit cook to us. And then we, with her instructions, um, tried to do a pit cook on the beach at Port Renfrew. And uh, I remember very well, we tried to follow her instructions. And I'll just quickly describe them because we used the same recipe when you came to the pit cook. And I've been using that recipe over many years now because this would be back around uh, in the mid-70s. Uh, sorry, the, the early 80s, I guess. Um, and the women would uh, harvest three, three main roots that they pit cooked in this way. Uh, the springbank clover, which is a native clover with long white rhizomes. Uh, this Pacific silverweed, which has long tap roots, and camas, which is a lily with edible bulbs, not to be confused with death camas, which is another lily with poisonous bulbs. And uh, they, they cook these in layers. So they would dig a pit and uh, put a fire in the pit. And they had special dense uh, igneous rock rounded by the that they got in certain places. They put those rocks in the fire and heated them until they're red hot. Then they would get salal, which is a plant in the heather family with evergreen, uh, fragrant evergreen leaves. And they put a big bundle of salal leaves over the hot rocks. And and um, they put a post in the middle after they, after the rocks had gotten hot and they took the, the unburned wood out and so forth and then put the salal, and then sword fern, another plant that's common in our forests, as a kind of a layer below the food. And then they would put layers of food on top, interspersed with sword fern, and um, the camas bulbs first, and then the silverweed, and then the clover, and then topped with more, sala more sword fern, and then more salal. Meanwhile, you pull, take the post out and pour water through the channel that's left, and it goes down and hits the red-hot rocks and creates jet billows of steam. And it's actually the steam that's going to cook the food because you quickly cover the pit and cover it over with soil to keep the steam and the, uh, the heat in the pit. And, and then you leave it. And for properly cooking camas, you have to leave it overnight at least wow. because it requires that much cooking to convert the main carbohydrate, which is inulin, into fructose, which is a more digestible, sweeter sugar than inulin. And um, so, but over the years, I've used the same method to cook potatoes and uh, you know the standard vegetables, and you, it, you can do it much in a much quicker time. People use the same method for clams and even for salmon and, and other foods as well. Um, so that's the kind of the basic recipe. Uh, when you uncover the food, it has this kind of a, 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 well, fragrant, smoky kind of flavor to it. 
that it, I think it's sort of a combination of baking, smoking, and steaming. And it gives the food a very special flavor. Even things like potatoes, you can just eat them without any kind of dressing or anything. They're, they're just very flavorful, right, just by themselves. Yeah, that's, that's so, one <laughs> no, that, that's one thing I, I really remember about the pit cook is that, um, you know, we, we took we took the, the um, sort of hessian off and, and we took this the layer off and then the billowing steam came up from the ground and all the food came out. And yeah, it had this amazing, unique flavor. As you said, it was like a cross between a, a kind of barbecue, a smoker. It, it, yeah, just just amazing. And, and the the vegetables and the salmon just kind of fell apart in your hand. It was just uh, so, so good. Um, yeah, yeah in, incredible experience. So I, I'm, I'm interested because we're, um, we're, we're struggling to get some of your books in the UK, Nancy. Uh, I've, I've tried uh, a, a few different routes and um, I'm, I'm going to, uh, hopefully after this call, I'm going to chase you up and I want to get, get all of your books together. Um, but I've, I've, watched some of your videos and, and things online. So I, I'd just love to hear more about your research because I think this is something that lots of people would be so interested in. Um, just some of the the uses of plants that you describe in, in some of your videos for, for rope, for fishing, for medicinal uses. I mean, I'd love you just to share some, some examples as, as stories with us. Sure, okay. Well, uh... In this part of the world, often uh, fishing and hunting is given primacy over plant use for food. And uh, people kind of forget uh, that plants provide, not only provide important sources of food, fruits and greens and root vegetables and seaweed and even the inner bark of trees and so forth, but they are also essential for procuring the other kinds of food that people use from the ocean and from the land. So uh, the plants are important uh, sources of materials for making baskets, for example, for fishing line, um, for implements of all kinds. And um, each kind of wood has its own properties. And so you, you have certain things like you, our Pacific you, which is similar to your English you, was used for bows, and in fact, the name means bow plant, and a number of the languages here, wedge plant and others, and, and uh, fishing spear plant and others, and so forth. But um, you wood was used uh, for making, for digging sticks, for digging out the camas bulbs and uh, clams and so forth. And um, crab apple wood was sometimes used for that as well. So every kind of tree and shrub around here had its own particular applications in, in terms of materials. There's a, a shrub we have here called ocean spray, or ironwood, we call it. It has long shoots uh, that are very strong wood, but they're long and straight. And people use them for making needles, for uh, sewing mats cattail leaves and tule together to make mats. And they also use it for arrows and sometimes for digging sticks and fish spears and skewers and that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, other trees like western red cedar, very, very important here 
has uh, quite light, easily split wood that uh, could be split off standing living trees um, in the form of planks that could be used for houses, for roofing and siding of houses. And of course, cedar was also the main material for making the dugout canoes that uh, people here on the coast are so famous for. Some of them were big enough to hold 60 people. Wow. It's hard to imagine. When I'm teaching a class of 50 students and I say, look around you, imagine every one of you sitting in a canoe together. It's just hard to imagine. That's insane. <laughs> And, and, of course, cedar um, was not only the wood. Um, oh, and one more thing about the wood. They made these amazing bent wood boxes with cedar planks where they would kerf at right angles. They would make grooves in three uh, parts of the wood of a plank and then steam it or soak it for a long time. And then you could actually bend the wood into a... a right angle and so three right angles and the fourth fits together and is sewn with root or pegs and that those make the four sides of a wooden box you fit it with a, a base and then a lid and you can use those uh, well they have one <laughs> <laughs> oh my god wow that's incredible cedar wood bent wood box um you can see maybe the corner yeah that is sewn or stitched and this corner is bent oh that's incredible it almost looks like it's machine made that's um that's wow well, this one uh was gifted to me by by our dear friend the late clan chief adam dick Quaxistalawaka. And he made it, and he probably used a few tools in his shop for this. But he's also made, he made three canoes with his grandfather when he was a boy. And uh, he, he's also made uh, a lot of wood, wooden items like that. But that, the containers, um, the cedar wood boxes are very important for food storage and, and for other purposes as well. You can cook in those too. You can put something in the bottom and put water and then red hot rocks and bring things to a boil and steam things in that in that box. So it's really amazing. And uh, and then cedar branches, cedar bark, cedar roots. They're all used in different ways for rope and for making baskets. And in a culture like you see here. Everything comes in pieces, right? Berries and even fish, clams. Uh, you, you need containers to transport them from place to place to process them and to store them. And so uh, plant materials like cedar bark and cedar wood and uh, different kinds of materials used for baskets are really an important part of the food system. We don't think about that very much, but it's true that you, you really couldn't have all of the food that you need without th those materials to make containers to store them in and so forth. Wow. Yeah, I guess you 
you you don't think about that aspect. I mean, I, I guess the immediate one is you know transporting water, but yeah, of, of course. I mean, you know, to to forage and um, Jules and I have done a little bit of foraging of our own in in the UK, and yeah, I mean, you you it does take an awful lot of time and energy to to find it, um, and and it it always surprises me that. Um, I mean, here in the UK, it, it, it's quite hard to make a meal out of forage food. So you can only imagine that obviously they would have had um, a lot more biodiversity back then and, and the forests were much bigger. But but still, I mean, it, it must have required an, an awful lot of effort to to go out and collect all of these plants and go fishing and, and then bring it all together as a meal. So, yeah, that's that's amazing. Another uh, thing that I came to realize over the years of working with these knowledgeable people was just how important the human element was in in producing the food and uh, promoting the food. And the people here are often called hunter-gatherers, but to me that doesn't adequately portray the care that they used and, and the different uh, techniques that they were using to actually produce their food. It was different than the gardening that you see in Europe. I, I call it different than Mr. McGregor's garden style of gardening, uh, where you have annual plants that you sow in in rows and you harvest and you select, the, you save the seed and then you grow it again the next year. Uh, for the plants that people use here, um, they're they're all perennials, and so they, you have it's more like an orchard kind of uh, uh, food production where you prune your berry bushes, you uh, you burn over areas that um, that to maintain an open prairie like atmosphere for the camas to to flourish, for example, um, and other things that you do uh, like re uh, put smaller fragments of roots or the littler bulbs back in the soil or digging your your camas bulbs at the time of the year when the camas has gone to seed so while you're digging the bulbs you're actually scattering more seed into the soil those kinds of things um, when they all go together it could be for clams or it could be for berries or it could be for root vegetables but People were actually cultivating these species in a way that wasn't recognized by the European newcomers when they came to this area. They didn't understand what they were doing and they didn't see, they, they thought that uh, people here were living in a very primitive way compared with uh, what Europeans were doing with their gardening and their ranching and so forth. Uh, it, it was their, um, the methods of, First Nations here were much more subtle, uh, but they were every bit as sophisticated, in my view, as the food production methods in Europe. If not more. Yeah, if not more, because yeah. they kept... Um, in fact, I mentioned Adam Dick. Um, he gave us a word in his language, which is Kwakwala, from the Kwakwakwak nation on the central coast here. Um, that means keeping it living. If you translate it in English, it means keeping it living. And it's sort of a philosophy and a technique that people used over and over again uh, to maintain 
the habitats of, of plants and animals and to, to actually maintain the plants themselves um, by, by just partial using them, by, by pruning them, um, and, and by other methods of um, maintaining them. So uh, it, it is a, a very effective way of producing and enhancing your food, but uh, not one that was well recognized. Sure. I mean, I, I, I think it's fascinating because that, that is what we now call permaculture, right? I mean, it, you know, all of these, all of these books that talk about the techniques of replenishing your soil and companion planting, and you know, the fertilization and and you know, the biosphere and the microbiome of the soil and the mycorrhizal relationship and. You know, we, we're sort of making this all so complicated now, but actually for them it was ever so simple of just work with nature and respect nature and don't take too much and, and understand the the natural flow of things. Um, one, one of my favourite books that I've ever read, uh, I'm sure you probably have heard of it, if not read it, um, One Straw Revolution by Masanobu Fukuoka. Um, and uh, so you would love it. And he's a, a Japanese farmer a you could call him a farmer i guess but really he was a, a i would think of him more as a, as a zen teacher uh, and he embodied zen teachings within his farming um and his method what he calls do nothing farming and so it was about sitting back for you know 30 40 years and figuring nature out and watching things very carefully and doing as little as he physically could to get the food production he needed. And it actually got to a point where his rice fields in Japan, um, he just left to grow wild. And he was actually having the same production as all of the other rice field farmers um, who were using all of these sort of complicated techniques of soaking and draining and planting and sowing and you know all of this stuff and he was just sitting back and you know writing poems and thinking about you know the great questions of the universe um so yeah i, th I think that's a really beautiful notion and um it just shows you that obviously nothing nothing's really new and we're just discovering this knowledge again it's coming back round again yeah i think you're right i think uh Permaculture is a very good uh, parallel to what people have been doing here. And the whole notion, too, of um, experiential learning, careful monitoring and observation over not just one lifetime, but over generations and passing on the knowledge and bringing children into it from an early age so uh, they get the training and understanding uh, in, in a different way from a lot of kids today uh that's a that's a part of it as well very true yeah and and i think uh, like you said when when you when you look at old structures of, of indigenous populations and and i i watched an amazing uh, documentary about the piraha tribe I, I don't know if you've seen that um and it was primarily about their language and and they were they're a very very isolated brazilian tribe and their language was so complex that it could be sung whistled clicked hummed and and spoken I, I think that there was this amazing diversity of language but the one thing that the cameramen 
noticed was that when they were walking around with um, the, the, the linguist who was there translating, that even the children knew every single name of every plant in their jungle. I mean, it's, it's the Amazon. It, it's not, you know, um, so they have, you know, thousands upon thousands of different species, but they knew intimately the plants around them and also their uses. Yeah, it, it reminds me of uh, what, what I heard the other day, the Oxford English Dictionary has taken a number of names of plants and animals out of the dictionary because people aren't using them anymore. Oh, and it's such oh, things like kingfisher. Um, and, and imagine uh, a language where those words aren't known. It, it seems inconceivable to me. Uh, and somebody in, there in England has written a book on those words. They, they've taken those words and they've written a whole book about them. So hopefully they'll come back into the language again. But it's true that uh, in many places now, children know much more about cars, uh, different kinds of cars, than they do about different kinds of birds or plants. Just very sad to me. Yeah, yeah, it certainly is. And and I think that loss of relationship with the food, um, where it comes from and, and, and that life cycle. And and I think even nutrition and, and I um I've I've had a real keen uh, interest in nutrition for a for a number of years now and, and the thing that I find really interesting is that um it seems to be coming out in a lot of research now that the closer we get to our native foods, the healthier we get. I mean, it, it's, it shouldn't be rocket science, um, but I just think it, it's so interesting that actually, I, and I, I'd love to hear about your friend's nutritional research because I, I have heard of some research that when they talk about um, modern, and, and it was a comparison, I'll, I'll try and find the study for the show notes, but it was a comparison on store-bought iceberg lettuce compared with wild lettuce. And, and it was something like there was 400% more nutrients in the wild lettuce than in iceberg lettuce. Um, That's so interesting. And of course, uh, all around the world, the, the food systems are changing. We're eating much more of our food from away in packaged and processed forms that aren't necessarily uh, as good for us. So Harriet's work, Harriet Kuhnlein and her colleagues, she's worked with indigenous peoples uh, in many parts of the world, uh, including in Canada. We actually co-authored a book together, by the way, called um, Plant Foods of Canadian Indigenous Peoples, or something like that, um, <laughs> that is actually available online. And her other uh, three other books that Harriet has co-edited are also online all through the FAO website. So Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN. If you look up their website and you look up Kuhnlein, K-U-H-L-E-I-N, you'll find her three books on indigenous people's food systems for health. And um, she talks about uh, what's called the nutrition transition which is happening worldwide, where there's been a, a huge shift in people's food systems um, away from those locally sourced fresh uh, f 
food to uh, much more processed food from distant places. And for all of us, it's not as healthy uh, as, as it should be. And yeah. for indigenous peoples in particular, um, many of them are suffering at a higher, much higher rates uh, from diabetes and uh, other diet-related diseases because of that. Yeah, I, I think it's it's interesting because um, this was you know Western A Price's research as well, and and there's, you know there's many many others that that brought up this same point. But um, you know when the turn of the century was starting to happen and people were coming away from their indigenous diets, they they got sick, uh, and the ones yeah. that he managed to photograph, as particularly their teeth, and he's, he's you know got these amazing books full of photos of before and after you know in these indigenous diets and these natives looking strong and healthy and they've got these big beautiful teeth and big jaws and you know they're tall and heads full of hair and then the after of the introduction of you know different diets and sugars and things like that and suddenly the the teeth are full of dental ca uh, cavities and uh, they're, they're missing teeth or they've got dental caries or crowding in the mouth and the jaws were smaller and so I, I, th I think it was it was a, a really interesting thing. And, and that's a very good way to put it, this nutritional trans transition. Um, and, and I'm really interested, Nancy, because I, I think I remember rightly, but when we were in Canada, uh, I, I asked you a question and you were very busy. So it was only a, a very quick question, but um, it, it was about indigenous diets. And, and I said in Canada uh, specifically, um, what was the composition of plant matter in the diet? And I think I remember you saying it was about 30%. Yes, that, that's true. Maybe more uh, depending on what area we're talking about. A little bit less in the north and more in the south. Um, but it, not only was it a, a very substantial percentage of the diet, um, but nutritionally very very important contributions of nutrients that you don't find uh, in, in quantity in the animal foods as much so um, the greens for example provide vitamin A and vitamin C and uh, and various minerals like iron and so forth um, the berries uh, and, and then there's these compounds like flavonoids that are antioxidant that you find in the dark colored berries are salal berries, which um, did you have a chance to taste the berries while you were there? I, yes, I did, because you, you put them in with the salmon. I, I, I remember you'd got, I think it was wild crab apples and you had yeah. some other kind of berry as well. Yeah, we had some cranberries, but also maybe some salal. They're very dark berries, and they have they're very rich in flavonoids, more more so than uh, blueberries, which are often uh, you know given as an example. Um, and uh, so these these compounds are not just um, for calories, but also nutrients that we need for for our health, for strong teeth and so forth, calcium and and whatnot. Uh, the root vegetables, they all, they all provide meaningful amounts of these different uh, nutrients that we need. 
And Harriet's books have nutrient tables that give you the quantities that these different foods provide. Um, and even in our book on uh, indigenous food plants in Canada, we have tables at the back that show the, the importance of different nutrients and the amounts that they provide. Amazing. Right. Well, that's on my list to buy now. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I think I think it's interesting because thirty percent is an interesting number. You know, I mean, it could be could be lower, could be higher, but but that still means that they must have been eating, you know, quite a lot of animal products as as well as as well as the plants. And and I suppose this is something that's really interested me that that not only the plants that they were eating would look incredibly different nutritionally from the mass-produced fruits and vegetables in polytunnels fed with you know um, nitrogen phosphorus and calcium and nothing else and it not even in soil but but also as you know for the animals that they were consuming that the animals would have been consuming these really high density nutrient rich plant foods um, and and so I suppose that for some of the nutrients that maybe we struggle to break down the you know the animals that they must have been consuming must have been you know incredibly healthy uh, as well yeah i i would think so certainly um all the descriptions of the first europeans who came here you know talk about how incredibly bountiful the lands and waters were in terms of salmon and uh, um, marine mammals birds uh game of all kinds um, it, it's it was incredible um, and they those two have diminished a lot here and and around the world I, I guess you've seen the world wildlife figures about how much of the biodiversity we've lost especially some of the larger animals and birds and so forth it's really sad yeah, ab yeah absolutely and and i think that um two things that that really interest me are the the destruction of the soil uh and particularly the the mycorrhizal networks that the uh I, I can't think of the term that that's used but the it's it's the, the sort of web of the soil you know the, this incredible uh fungal growth that runs through soil for for you know thousands of miles sometimes uh, and also as as well as the insects you know because they have such a pivotal role to play in our ecosystems and we're it's it's insect genocide which, which is um i, I don't think we, we're quite seeing the implications of that yet but but i'm but i'm sure we will yeah no i think you're right um i can tell you're a paul stamets fan yes <laughs> I, uh, Paul uh, Stamet, yeah, I, I think I've watched every single lecture he's ever given online uh, and could <laughs> still watch more. I mean, a, a, an incredible guy. And, and I read yeah. The Hidden Life of Trees as well, um, oh, yeah. which is just the most incredible book and um, makes you feel guilty for ever writing on a piece of paper. You know, the, these incredibly intelligent beings of, of want of a better word and their relationship with each other and forests and how they all coexist um so yeah, quite incredible yeah it, it really is really is um 
Gee, I hope you come back here so that we can talk more. <laughs> yes, that's yeah, definitely. That that's uh, certainly the plan. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I'm just I'm interested in as well um, the natives and medicinal use of plants because I think that's something that's kind of creeping back and people are talking about it. And Paul Stamets has done amazing research on obviously the medicinal use of mushrooms, and and I was just shocked going into I, I was so lucky to go into some forests in um, Shushwap um, uh, and uh, in, in British Columbia and did some mushroom foraging and I was just stunned by the growth of mushrooms and everywhere you looked there was some kind of mushroom or fungus sprouting so I, the, the native peoples of Canada must have had such a relationship with with those funguses and mushrooms well they did in fact uh the big tree fungus, uh, you know, the, the bracket fungus, um, has a, a really special role in, uh, in some of the cultures here on the coast. In the Saanich Sanchathan language, it's called Tuto Alakup, uh, which means echo maker. And, and the tradition is that the tree fungus is what sends echoes back. If, and, and it's not just for sound, but if there's any kind of a bad feeling directed to someone, the, if you have the tree fungus as a protector, it will, it will reflect that bad feeling back on the person who sent it. And so it, it protects, it, people will often, even today, um, put a tree fungus by their front door. Uh, by by the house and in fact we have one by our front door in Victoria is um, as a kind of symbolic protection of the household and Adam made a beautiful big one that he gifted to us with a painting of a wolf on it and so um, that's just one kind of very special uh, I guess relationship that people have with the with that fungus, um, but it's there's also various uh, fungi that are used uh, medicinally, and one of them is the same as chaga, Aimanotus uh, obliquus. It's the birch conch, cinder conch fungus uh, that people used for uh, not just for um, as a fire holder. Um, in a slow match, enclose, if you light it, it will smolder and you can enclose it between the freshwater mussel shells and carry it with you or bury it in the ground and it will hold fire for a long time. But they also use it for moxibustion. It's very similar to, um, I guess, what the, the Chinese healers use, where you put a little bit on your skin in a place where you have pain and burn it down and, and it pops and the, and uh, at, the pain is drawn out they say from that so there's uh, yeah there are many different relationships that people have on the coast they didn't eat mushrooms traditionally as far as I can tell with maybe a few exceptions but in the interior um, they use through maybe half a dozen different kinds one being the cottonwood mushroom, Tricholoma populinum, and one being the pine mushroom, Tricholoma magnivillari. 
and um, and a couple of others. One of which um, I it's hard to it's hard to identify these because they're so ephemeral. Um, you have to be there at the right time, at the right place, with the right person who knows to to be able to identify them. But um, there was one mushroom that I heard about from elders called Flitka, which means slimy top. And uh, finally, I went out with an elder who knew what it was, Edith O'Donaghy from Nililuit. And we went out in the fall and we found it. And I urged... Uh, no, we didn't find it, but she had a jar that she jarred of it, uh, and they do can can mushrooms like that. I sent it away to uh, my friend Scott Redhead, and he identified it. It was um, I was going to say Inanotus hygrophorus gliocyclus, um, which is a mushroom that hadn't been collected in British Columbia before. Wow. And here are names for it in a couple of different interior Salish languages. And obviously was a mushroom that, that was very important, but uh, Western mycologists hadn't caught up with that yet. Wow, that's amazing. Um, yeah. I, one, one thing, and, and I hope I'm not taking into too much of your, your morning, Nancy. It's morning where you are. Um, it's evening where I am. Um, but... One thing that I would love people to know, and, and um, before coming to Canada, I really had no idea of the the, the density of Native peoples. And, and I suppose it was my, my ignorance. You know, at school, we all hear about the Native American Indians and, you know, you see them in the films. But I was really shocked to hear how many different um tribes if if that's the right word to use that there are and and so many different languages so um yeah I'd, I'd love people to hear just a little bit about that sure well in canada alone there are about 50 different languages spoken wow and wow. Um, some of those are related to each other in the same way that the romance languages spanish and french and italian are related but they're distinct languages and uh so we have, um, in British Columbia, 30 of those languages are spoken, which is pretty phenomenal. It's one of the densest linguistically diverse areas in the world. And um, a number of those languages are in what they call the Salishan language family. So the peoples of southeastern Vancouver Island, where I am here, uh, the Snenemoch, after which the city of Nanaimo is named, um, and the Cowichan, uh, they are related, uh, and they speak the same language as the people over in Vancouver, a uh, good part of Vancouver, the Musqueam. They're all Hulkamatnam, or Halkamalam people, and that's one family, different dialects of one family. Around Victoria, there's another language, the Strait Salish, which is related to Halkamalam or Hokumitnam, but uh, is, is different enough that it's a separate language. And then there's um, Squamish and Sishak or Seashelt. Those are Coast Salish languages, Komats or Tlaaman. And up the coast, there's a little enclave of Salish in the middle of a different language family. That is the Balakula or Newhalt people speak. A Salish language, which must have 
uh, split off from the original parental Salish, proto-Salish, they call it, a long time ago because their, their language, you can recognize a few of the words, but it's quite distinctive. And um, then there's another language family, the Wakashan, and that's, I mentioned Kwakwala, the Kwakwakwa people's language, Heltsuk, Haisla, Awikino, um, and Nuchanoth and Dididat and Maka in the Washington uh, um, Olympic Peninsula are all related languages um, that are in one family. And then another family that's very broad and, and extends across northern Canada, especially the Athabascan languages. There's Taltan, Sekini, Dakaf, or Carrier, um, Tilkotan, or Tilkotin, and, um, and across Gwich'in and uh, right across Chippewyan, so forth. Those are related languages. And then you go down into the southwestern states, and Navajo and Apache are also uh, Athabascan languages. So people, uh, before Europeans ever arrived here, people were traveling quite broadly for various reasons. They say that the homeland of the Athabascans uh, is in central Alaska and Yukon, and there was a major volcanic eruption um, some years ago, actually a series of them, um, and that might have triggered people to move out of that area and move southward and then kind of spread out um, and so there's all this dynamics of people moving around the landscape and sharing vocabulary, sharing their languages. As languages, you know, people moved, their languages became distinct and, uh, and differentiated from each other. But if you look at the names for plants, for example, you can trace how those languages dispersed and what groups of people had contact with each other. For example, you see many Proto-Salish or Salish words borrowed into the Wakashan languages. And, um, and you see like the Newhawk language, which is Salish, has quite a few names of um, Wakashan languages like Kwakwala or Heltsuk embodied within it. And you, you see um, words that are borrowed from language to language to language, like the name for highbush cranberry, stulls, or stullus, um, comes from a Proto-Salish word. It means a clicking sound. And um, it's borrowed into uh, the Wakashan languages. And then it seems to have been borrowed back into the Newhawk language, and then the carrier or Dachau people from the interior, there's a family up there called the Stillus family, and they're named from that highbush cranberry word um, that they must have uh, somehow gotten from the Newhall carrier because they used to travel back and forth there. So it's really interesting to see how these languages have uh, evolved and have dispersed and have interacted with each other um, and the knowledge and and the knowledge um, sharing and uh, adaptation that are, is reflected in in the language 
in the names for plants and so forth. It's all fascinating. It's just incredible, really, that there is so much diversity within within Canada. And, you know, I, I, I suppose that the whole of the Americas, you know, going back would have been very similar. Um, what a shame we don't have a time machine to go back and, and experience all that um, wonderful, cohesive societies. Um, and, and I guess one, one, of, one of the last questions that I've got is with, with such diversity, was there any commonality within spiritual practices? Well, absolutely, there was. Um, and I mentioned the concentric worldview, the concentric approach, where uh, plants and animals are considered to be human kin, that they have their own, their own families, their own cultures, their own languages, and they're parallel to those of humans. And that concept is really a spiritual one sees um, animals and plants as spiritual beings who uh, give themselves to us humans. Um, and, and so the, the practices of always, um, when you're harvesting something, uh, of asking permission, of talking to the, uh, the spirit of the plant or the animal that you hope to take from, um, and th the uh, ceremonies that are meant to uh, celebrate those species um, are found very widely. For example, there's a first salmon ceremony all up and down the coast that uh, pays tribute to the salmon for giving its life to humans. And, and the first salmon that's caught in, in the year, the first sockeye, for example, everybody would stop fishing and they'd um, ceremonially carry the fish up to the elders who would then cook the fish and then um, share it to everyone. And nobody would fish for four days. And, and then they would fish, but only take as much as they needed, never more. There are all kinds of stories about if you transgress those those rules, you know, you will you will have really bad luck, and there's many examples of that. And there's those examples are spread throughout the different uh, cultural traditions in different ways. So those are um, just just one example. The potlatch is very widespread, and it, it also is a, a spiritual and ceremonial occasion. Um, we think of it as, as a, um, I guess, an event where you give gifts away, but the giving of gifts is very much a ceremonial representation of exchange of, of a sacred relationship with the land and ways of teaching uh, younger people and, and people in the community about our responsibilities to the land and that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's very important. And I guess you know uh, Robin Kimmerer's book, Braiding Sweetgrass. I don't know. Oh, okay. My favorite, all-time favorite book by Robin Wall Kimmerer. She's a citizen Potawatomi, uh, but also f 
uh, trained in Western botany. She teaches at New in New York, and uh, you'll love her book. It starts with the story of uh, how humans came on Earth, and she has a wonderful way of bringing together Western science and Western botany with her indigenous knowledge systems and and um, traditions and beautiful beautiful writing. You'll just love it if you can get a hold of it. I'll I'll make sure I do somehow some way I'll I'll get hold of it for sure. Yeah. Um. Braiding sweetgrass is a metaphor for bringing together this Western science knowledge and indigenous knowledge oh. to make something really strong and beautiful. Yeah, that that's incredible. Um, and it, you know, very much uh, a, a real passion of mine because I I, th I think you know we we can all learn so much from from these cultures and and I think um, so many of us you know in in modern life have lost the way a little bit sometimes when it when it comes to the world around us and all these things help to remind us that we are part of a of a giant organism um yeah. as uh, rick archer says from from back gap i don't know whether you know but at the gas pump but he's got some amazing interviews from sort of spiritual people talking about interesting things and, and he calls us sense organs of the ultimate um okay. this idea that we're we're just part of this big living organism and and to we've i think seen ourselves for a very long time as this monarchical top of the food chain um whereas the indigenous cultures it it was the opposite we were just a functioning part of a of a larger ecosystem um so so i suppose that was was that then the the foundations of of that spiritual understanding of the native peoples of canada the first nations yes yeah, one other book that, if you haven't read, you would really enjoy. Actually, two. Um, there are two. Uh, one is a sequel to the other by our friend Dr. Richard Atlio, who is a member of the House Nation of New Channel. And his book, the first book is Sawak. It's spelled T-S-A-W-A-L-K. Sawak means one. And Hishuk Ishtsawak means everything is one in his language. And he writes about Tsawak, and then he writes how Tsawak, that new channel concept, can be used in a way to address the world's problems. And he's working on, uh, he's written a third book, and he's working on a fourth book on, in this series on um, new channel uh, spirituality and how important it is in understanding the world and in looking after the world. He's a very dear friend of ours, and um, and he would be very interested in, you know, in the work that you're doing as well. Amazing! That sounds incredible. Um, and and just one one last question before we close: How has all of this impacted your life? Uh, uh, you know, in in. <laughs> in the many years that, that you've been doing what you've been doing? Oh, my. I, I felt so, so fortunate to have had the opportunities that I've had, to, uh, to have had the friendships that I've had and the teachers that I've had, the family that I've had. And, uh, and I, I often say it's been a life of endless fascination because 
there's always so much to learn and you can never stop learning. It just goes on and on. And the more you learn, the more uh, rich everything becomes. So I just feel so, so lucky. I can't imagine um, any other life than, than what I've had. Amazing. And if I could steal one piece of advice from you for somebody out there who's who's thinking about studying ethnobotany or who's got an interest in it, what, what would you say to them and, and how could they actually go about making that a, a, a part of their life? Uh, I guess I could turn it back and say, never be afraid to ask advice. <laughs> um, because, uh, you know, you often wonder what should I do or how should I go about something? And you're, kind of uh, a lot of people are reluctant to uh, to ask the people who really know and I, I'm thinking in terms of um, my work with indigenous elders and you know often they're very happy to uh, work with you and to give advice and tell you you know what they think is the right the right thing and and yet many people will hesitate to ask because they don't want to intrude or something like that. Um, so I think, uh, you know, go with your, with what makes you happy, go with the things uh, and don't worry about money too much. We all need money a little bit, but it's not the primary thing that makes you rich in the world. <laughs> um, there's so many other things that are so much more enriching than money. And uh, as long as you have enough to, to eat, um, just keep going and following your passion and enjoy life. And don't, do, don't take up something that you don't enjoy um, because you only have one life and uh, you don't want to waste it. And, and even if you make lots of money at doing it, if you're not enjoying it, it's not worth doing. Yeah. I guess that's if a trade advice, but it's good to just reflect back. Is this making me happy? Am I enjoying this? Do I want to do this? Do I think it's important? And you'll know the answer. Yeah, powerful. Thank you, Nancy. That's, that's amazing. Um, and I guess by studying ethnobotany, you might be able to find the food that you need to eat in the forest anyway. So you don't, <laughs> you need even less money to live. Um, <laughs> That's great. So finally, tell everyone where they can find your information, your books, any websites, anything that you want people to know, events and anything like that. I'll put it all in the show notes. Um, and I use a, a really nice little click system so people can go and uh, hopefully buy your books as, as well. Yeah, I, the only, um, maybe the book that I would recommend the most is the two-volume Ancient Pathways Ancestral Knowledge book published by McGill Queen's Press. Um, oh, Douglas and McIntyre. Oh, The Earth's Blanket. Uh, might be of interest as well from Douglas and McIntyre um, and uh, museum handbooks from the Royal BC Museum. Uh, some of those things are out of press, but 
people could al also download for free the PDF of the uh, food plants of Indigenous peoples, Canadian Indigenous peoples. I'm not sure if that's the right title, but that's on the FAO website. So, yeah. Okay, fantastic. And any any websites or, or anything like that that people can find you on? Um, I've never tried to find it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I think they're out there, but I haven't looked. <laughs> okay, fantastic. Well, I'll I'll take a good look, and uh, I'll put them all in the show notes for for people to see. Um, Nancy, thank you so so much for for sharing all your knowledge and wisdom with us all. Um, I so appreciate it, and uh, I hope to see you in the UK or or Canada again soon. Thank you so much. And I've really enjoyed talking with you, Lewis. Thank you. Keep up the work. Thank you. Cheers. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.